Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Polita Clark and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. There's a growing trend among investors to shun companies that make their money from fossil fuels because of concerns about global warming. This has begun to influence some of the world's biggest asset managers, most notably BlackRock, whose chief executive Larry Fink has said the financial world is on the brink of a fundamental reshaping as the threat of climate change becomes more pressing. BlackRock's pledge to make sustainability more central to its investment approach may end up influencing others. So what does this mean for the oil and gas companies whose future profits depend on continuing to exploit the fossil fuels they have acquired around the world? Our Lex columnist, Alan Livesey, has been looking at the scale of risk facing these companies, and he's here with me to discuss this. And we're also joined by David Shepard, our energy editor. So, Alan, you've calculated that concerted action to tackle climate change could create a $900 billion stranded asset disaster for energy companies. Can you tell us, first of all, what exactly is a stranded asset? Stranded asset is an investment which at some time prior to the end of its economic life is just no longer able to earn an economic return. That's a stranded asset. It's kind of a white elephant that you bought and can't use. In this case, we were talking about oil, natural gas, coal assets, more or less in the ground. And we're envisioning a situation where it isn't economic to develop these assets And the reason that that might happen is because a government might introduce, for example, a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme or regulations of some sort that make it really difficult and expensive to use those assets. I was trying to envision a scenario where there is a carbon budget trying to figure out how much carbon can be emitted in a given time in order to control global warming. If we followed the UN's IPCC Intergovernmental Climate Change Committee scenario to keep warming to just 1.5 degrees Celsius, a 50% chance of doing that, that's the toughest scenario. That gets us to about 870, 900 billion worth of write-off of the proven assets for the biggest oil companies. In a two-degree scenario, which is the one that's most often talked about, it's less than that. But that's the worst-case scenario that I could find. Right. And David, have you seen any evidence at all that oil and gas companies are recognising the threat of stranded assets? I think so, but it depends how you look at it. The biggest international oil and gas companies are very much committed to still maintaining oil and gas production. They continue to put the vast majority of their capital expenditure towards developing oil and gas, even as they branch out into different areas such as wind and solar generation. The key bit, though, I think that shows a degree of recognition on their part that there is a risk of stranded assets is the way that they are treating the reserves. Once these were held to be golden, one of the key means of valuing a company, if you go back to the last decade, there was a huge scandal involving Shell when it turned out they'd been misstating the reserves. You look at Shell now, for the last six years, their reserves have fallen and their investors have barely blinked. Now, there appears to be a recognition on the side of investors that because there is this long-term risk to oil and gas demand, be that from regulatory changes or from the way that consumer behaviour might change vis-à-vis oil and gas, that reserves are perhaps not as big a deal as they once were. As long as the companies are showing that they're still profitable and can still 
get these resources out the ground for a good price right now, the investors are perhaps not as worried as they once might have been about the 20, 30, 40 year timeline. I mean, Shell, for example, only has about eight years of reserves left based on the amount that they're producing today. Now, that doesn't mean Shell's going to run out in eight years' time. I mean, the likelihood is that they will find additional supplies or find other things they can develop. But they're not putting the same focus on the reserve life that they once were when dealing with investors. Okay, so let's just look at the BlackRock decision. Now, it got a lot of attention at the time when Larry Fink made this announcement. Alan, do you think it's just lip service or do you think it is a really strong signal that there is a real shift that's about to happen in terms of investing in fossil fuels? I think if it's such a large asset manager, both in equities and bonds and also in the passive space, I think it's a signal. You know, they've now gone out and said they're going to do it. They have to follow through. They've been somewhat embarrassed recently in the press by not doing enough. Right. Have the oil companies themselves seen much impact on the value of their shares because of just broader environmental concerns? I think this one's a tough call because disaggregating the portfolio effects and market effects of what's happening now in tech versus resources, which are less interesting to the generalist portfolio manager, isn't that easy. I sense something is happening. It isn't just that prices are lagging the world markets. I see valuation discrepancies, which are the biggest I've seen in 10 years. Yeah, you actually mentioned some of those in your article. They're quite startling, right? They are startling. You wouldn't normally look just at something like price to cash flow, but in this case, it was the easiest way for me to compare world markets, including emerging markets, with the energy sector, which is mostly oil and gas in this case. And the valuation discrepancy on a price to cash flow basis is 10-year gaps. It's huge, right? That's also true, by the way, for airlines. So there's a number of sectors where you see this. It must be something a little bit more than the new economy, old economy split that we saw in the 90s. Right. And is there a difference between oil and gas companies and coal companies? Because coal is obviously the dirtiest fossil fuel. And this is perhaps evidence for the climate change activists, is that coal has really gotten hit much more. I see a worse case scenario rolling out for coal. Why is that? Partly... It's the evil fuel to a certain extent, and it's easier to get out of your portfolio sometimes, so there's been much more pressure. But also, and David will know this, natural gas prices have been weak. They've been particularly weak in North America, and that's a competing fuel against coal. So it's it's a sort of double whammy for coal. Coal prices, the stock prices, when I look at the index, since the peak in 2011, spring of 2011, down over 70%. Oil stocks have not done that badly. One thing in your article that I thought was really interesting was when you looked at what might happen if governments ever were to actually meet the aims of the Paris Climate Agreement, which says that warming should be kept to well below 2 degrees and ideally just 1.5 degrees. So if governments do in fact take enough steps to try to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, you've calculated that more than 80% of fossil fuel assets would be stranded and theoretically worthless. And even if they were looking at that two degree level, 59% of reserves would be stranded. I just wonder which companies have the most to lose here? Coal companies. (laughs) They're most of that. Okay, just so I'm clear. A lot of that is coal. But in terms of the oil and gas companies... 
I would say, Saudi Aramco. It has obviously very carbon-rich assets, most of which are oil. Oil has more carbon in it than natural gas. It has a very long reserve life, is what we call it. Reserves as a multiple of the amount they produce every year. So that's one. But another might be uh, Rosneft in Russia, which isn't producing as much compared to its reserves, or ExxonMobil, which controls imperial oil in Canada, and that has a major tar sands heavy oil project, Curl. Yeah, because presumably tar sands are more at risk than other forms of oil, right? When you have long reserve lives and highly carbon-rich, if that's the right word, assets, tar sands oil has much more carbon than regular oil than natural gas. So, David, how seriously do you think that the big energy companies are taking this threat to their future? And are they really beginning to shift their focus away from fossil fuels and towards, say, renewables? I think they're starting to take it incredibly seriously that doesn't mean they know quite what to do. They've built their businesses on the back of fossil fuels, and while they've faced various backlashes over the years, what they have faced in the last 12 months is arguably as intense as it's ever been. There has been a real sea change in the atmosphere around investment, around ethical, environmental, social governance and so on, ESG funds. People seem very willing to push back against the oil companies from an investment point of view in a way that they weren't before. And I really think that the executives of the big companies are struggling to know how to respond. The simple answer in many ways would be, well, do more renewables. They do not yet have a competitive advantage there. They do not yet have the confidence that they'll be able to make the money necessary to pay what are frankly ridiculously large dividends now. I mean, if you look at these oil companies, because their share prices are underperforming, partly because of the pushback on the climate change and the long-term future of these companies, you're looking at a company like Exxon is yielding 5%, Shell's above 6 I think, you know, BP's similar. These are incredibly high dividend yields that they're paying at a time when in the rest of the market, we go to the bond market, you're struggling to get 1% on mm. AAA-rated companies. Mm. So if you if you look at these guys, they're thinking, well, we've got to keep this dividend up somehow because that's the one thing keeping the share price up right now. No one's really buying the long-term future of oil story anymore in terms of where it goes 20, 30 years down the line. No one thinks we're about to return to $100 a barrel oil because US shales pulled the rug out from under them on that. And now you've got a generation of investors coming through, the millennials, for want of a better phrase, who have grown up with climate change. These guys are approaching their 40s now. They have money. They have pension funds. And they do not, by and large, want to be invested in oil and gas. So what can you do to sell that to your investors now to bring them in? Well, one company you've looked at that's really interesting, I think, is a Danish company called Orsted, which was previously Dong Energy. It's done a lot to reinvent itself. How did it actually go about doing that? It has, admittedly, from a much smaller scale. It was Danish oil and natural gas when it was first founded. Hence that, that's Dong. what Dong stands for. That's what for. Dong right. stands for, to much amusement in sort of English-speaking parts of the markets over the years. But they had a relatively small position. The Danes were never a powerhouse in the North Sea in the way that Norway has been, or to a lesser extent, the UK through private companies. But they had a position, they had a state-backed company. And as they started to experiment with things like offshore wind, they decided, look, this is an area of advantage that we have that no one else really has at scale yet. So let's go here. At the same time, Denmark is a country that's taken environmental policies pretty seriously. 
So they essentially have transformed the company into one primarily focused on developing offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, and they're also looking at other renewable fuels like hydrogen. And since listing on the market in 2016, I think it's fair to say that relative to this underperformance of the traditional oil and gas companies, Orsted has outperformed. Yeah, I mean, you reported that contrary to the share prices of the fossil fuel companies that Alan was just talking about, since the start of last year, Orsted's shares have gone up 70% and it's now worth 40% of BP. Is it kind of looking as though it might be the Tesla of energy companies or is that getting a bit ahead of ourselves? It's a comparison, I admit, I thought about and ultimately decided against, partly because it's 51% owned by the Danish state. And with the greatest of respect to our Danish listeners, your Danish government not quite as whizzy as Elon Musk and his rockets and flamethrowers, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) But there is an element of truth to it, I think, at least in terms of the way investors are looking at it. They're starting to value this, what in some ways you could see it as quite a sleepy utility in that it produces energy on long-term contracts, that it's generally has received a degree of government subsidy to build these offshore wind farms, and then it gets a relatively steady revenue base. The way you would normally value a company like that is pretty low forward multiple, but it's a steady eddy safe bet that you can have as part of your portfolio to balance things out. That's not how investors are looking at it right now. They're betting on growth. You look at its price earnings multiple, it has soared almost more than doubled in the last year because people are starting to say, hey, if we are going to have any chance at all of hitting 1.5 under the Paris Climate Agreement or even 2 degrees, you're going to have to see a massive transformation of the global energy system in the next two decades. So if you've got a company that's currently one of the market leaders in offshore wind and Orsted have developed a third of all offshore wind projects, at least in terms of the number of turbines, then it seems like a reasonably obvious horse to back. That doesn't mean it's going to succeed, but it does mean investors have certainly been drawn to it. Yeah. And Alan, just finally, how do you see this process evolving? Will the energy companies making vast amounts from fossil fuels today have time to adapt? Well, right now, the capital spending that's kind of renewable bits of their business is tiny, right? Okay, let's cut them a break. It's going to take a while, but it's grown from maybe 0.4% of their total capital spending to 0.7. Right, so it's still <laughs> it's, well under it's 1%. It's not a lot. So that's one thing. The cost of capital for them is going up for the oil and gas company or certainly natural resource companies. As their share prices go down, their valuations go down, as we were talking about before. Meanwhile, Orsted is getting a higher and higher multiple. I think that's also not just because of renewables, but it is seen as an infrastructure play, very sexy area to be. So we were talking about Tesla. (laughs) Orsted is kind of sexy for the infrastructure sector. So I think that kind of gap is growing and making it harder. And it's annoying probably for the oil and gas sector. I don't think that's going to go away, but there aren't that many Orsteds and there aren't many things for these guys to invest in. Right. I mean, that's a good point. And David, you mentioned Vestas has also seen a bit of a bump in its share price. Another Danish company, a wind turbine maker. Long Denmark seems to be the answer, but uh, it's more there around the, the turbine manufacturing side. But certainly there has been a rush of money into any company that looks solid and with a grounding in renewable energy right now. You have to be a little bit wary because there aren't that many out there. When you get a flood of money chasing not that many available publicly listed names for shareholders, there is 
Definitely, I'm not saying any of these companies are in a bubble, but there's an obvious risk there. Well, David, thanks so much, and thank you, Alan, and thank you for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on Tesla's soaring share valuation or China's battle against the coronavirus or what the Dutch can tell us about holding back floods as the polar ice melts, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.